Not yet turned there, Acts chapter 26, beginning in verse 1. But before we get into our new passage this morning, remember this is the second half of what we started last week. So we have called this Before Kings 4.2. Last week was 4.1, today we have 4.2. By way of recap, we looked at last week where we talked about things in our lives that come against us or that we deal with regularly, things that we We'll face time and time again and how things are on cycles and how we're to combat, combat the recurring lies of Satan and that we may battle with the rest of our lives maybe. We might have the same battle for a long time, but how do we win every time? How do we triumph each time that an attack comes our way? Or do we find ourselves repeating the same mistakes over and over again? Secondly, we looked at not being unwise, where we looked at the importance of educating ourselves and being aware or slash not being ignorant of what is not only happening in the spiritual realm, but what's happening in our homes, what's happening in our cities, our communities, our state, our country, and our world. And you can get the podcast of last week's study on breaking bad cycles in our lives and being able to have victory. And you can watch that and maybe revisit that. Or if you missed that, you can get yourself up to speed. But this morning, beginning in verse 1, since we had point number one, don't be caught off guard. Point number two, don't be unwise. And now the second half leads us to point number three, if you're taking notes, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Remember, Paul was standing before King Agrippa, a very powerful and influential man. He was there with the Roman governor Festus, and he's giving an an account of what is going on in his life. In verse 1 it says, Then Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. And we'll get there in verse 2 in just a second. In Psalm 119, verse 46, the psalmist says, I will speak of your testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed. He says, I will speak, O Lord, of your testimonies before kings and I will not be ashamed. So often, it can be very, isn't this true, very intimidating speaking of the truths of the Bible to someone who is popular or is in a place of authority. As, you know, really as if they weren't normal human beings with normal human feelings and needs like everybody else has. We might be enamored. I have your poster on my wall. Or starstruck. But we need to be able to confidently speak, knowing that if God has given us an open door, it's for a reason. And that reason is for the person we are speaking to, regardless of their social standing, how popular, rock star, actor, you know, whoever they may be, to know Jesus. Because we truly have the best information out there that has ever been or that ever will be the gospel. So we can be intimidated, oh, it's my boss, or like my boss doesn't have needs, or that guy oversees all of this, like he doesn't have emptiness that he's battling with, or, you know, look at her, she's got 15 million followers on Instagram, or whatever it might be. People are created in the image of God, and the playing field is level for everyone, regardless of where you might be socially. In Romans 1.16, Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Everyone. 
the millionaires and the people working at the drive-thru. Everyone. And so when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's because I have the best thing that the world has ever heard. And for those that have not heard of it, they need it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to save. I will speak of the Lord's testimonies before kings, the psalmist said, and will not be ashamed. It's important under this third point, don't be ashamed. Letter A, I would say this, it's your audience, so know it. If you're going to be speaking, then it's your audience, so know it. In verse 2 of Acts 26, he says, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially, Paul says, because you are an expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. In verse 2, he says, I am happy. I'm happy to be able to set the record straight before the people that are determining whether I'm innocent or not. But secondly, I am happy to be able to preach the gospel to a king. To a king. Our whole series entitled Before Kings, looking at Paul's trajectory to standing before the Roman emperor. See, the Lord can open up for us such amazing opportunities for us to share his love with people. And it doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter who they might be. What's important is that we take advantage that opportunity has afforded us. Now, this might be uh, something that you're not aware of, but there is a band, a secular band called Lincoln Park. And there is the lead singer of that band. His name is Chester Bennington. And I ran into him at a store in Fashion Island. And I thought, man, that's random. How random is that? But then maybe a month later, as I was walking across the bridge from what used to be Crystal Court at South Coast Plaza over to the Nordstrom side, there he was walking with his wife just, again, by himself, nobody else. I thought, how random is that that I keep bumping into this guy? And that's what I thought to myself, like, why do I keep running into him? And it got to the point where I said, you know what, if I keep running into this guy, the next time I see him, I'm just going to share the gospel with him and, and, and tell him about Jesus. Now, I haven't run into him again yet, and if I do, I'll definitely let you know how that goes. But it's never, it's never nice to be blindsided. So Paul, when he's going to speak before Agrippa, he's saying, I know who this guy is. I know about him. I read about him. I've heard about him. I am not unaware of the audience that I'm speaking to. And so when I said, it's your audience, so know it, it's because Paul knew who he was addressing, and that fact changed the words and how he would communicate the unchanging truth of the gospel. To get to know people. I think this is huge. We call it a lot of times relational evangelism, where I get to know, you know, Mary, that's the checker at Ralph's by my house, or or whatever it might be, where you get to know the person, get to know about them, get to know their background, and then you're able to effectively communicate the gospel. Because, again, it is never nice to be blindsided. For those of you that are football fans, you know it's never nice for that 280-pound lineman that is running as fast as he possibly can, who's, as the quarterback's about to throw it, blindside him, knocks his helmet off, his shoes come out, you know, he can feet out of his shoes, you know, they're flying in the air. 
Or like the guy who asked the woman how far along she was when she wasn't along at all. Or the time you yelled at someone for being rude and didn't realize that their child had just passed away. Blindsided. It's important to be aware of who you are talking to and maybe show a little bit of interest in them. And this can come down to doing a little bit of homework and somewhat being up on current affairs as much as possible. Knowing who people are and their background and the things that go on. This shows interest. And this is something that we shouldn't be doing even superficially. Oh, I just want to show interest in you just so I can... No, it's like we should have a general concern for people's well-being and want to know who they are. And I feel like if we shopped at the same center for 15 years and don't know one person that works there, then maybe we need to branch out a little bit and say hello and not look down and be on our phone when we're sliding our credit cards to put in our pin to pay for our groceries, that we can really do a better job at connecting with people. It was so random. It was 10 o'clock at night. I go to the Ralph's by myself, and some girl just says, she works at Ralph's, and I pay for my food because I usually, when I go in there, I'm like, hey, what's up, guys? How you doing? And try to be cool with people. And so happens that this girl wearing her, her, her Ralph's you know, uh, attire came up, and she's like, how's the church going? And I said, how do you know about the church? Oh, I used to, you know, I know, you know, I used to go to the study that you did and blah, 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 and this, and, and how's Ruth doing, and how are the kids doing? And, and I, I was so caught off guard, but I thought, how cool is that? Aren't you glad that you're not a rude person when you go to Ralph's at 10 o'clock at night, or whatever it might be? You know, because you never know who knows of you or who knows that you go to church or who saw you get out of your car and had some Christian sticker on it, you know, or whatever it might be. And so I think that as a church as a whole, Vision City Church should be committed to getting to know people personally and having an interest, a sincere desire to know who that person is, to be aware of what's going on in our world. To not bury our heads in the sand, but to rather use what we know of what's happening in the world and use what we know about people to help them come to know Jesus. So, letter A was, it's your audience, so know it. And letter B is, it's your story, so tell it. It's your audience, so know it. And then it's your story, so tell it. You might think, well, how does this make sense? Well, you'll find out. Just got to hold on a couple more minutes. In Christian knees, this is called a testimony. Okay, this is what people say. I, I shared my testimony or, you know, I, 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 I gave my testimony. What they're really doing is that they're giving their testimony of the facts found in their story. The facts are, number one, who they were, number two, what God did, and number three, who they are now. So if you've ever wondered, like, hey, how do I tell my story? Who you were, what God did, and who you are now. Those three things, those are vital components of sharing your story or testimony about what God has done in your life. But unfortunately, most of us spend too much time on point number one. Section one, who I was. We, we camp out there. Forever and ever and ever. Now, section one, who we were before Jesus, is important, but it's not most important. Section one gives context to the person we're speaking to, of the type, to the type of person that we were. Now, some people today, when uh, talking about sharing their story or their testimony, they feel that their section one isn't that great because they didn't have all this bad stuff in their life that they were a part of. Man, my testimony just stinks. My testimony is just terrible. You know, that's why you hear Christians say that, well, I don't have that great of a testimony. Because 
The guy that was the drug addict, con artist, jewel thief, martial artist, double agent, killing people, starting revolutions, making revolution, uh, making millions, partying, and has their own clothing line that came to Jesus is way better than just you who had a normal life. True? Yeah. Whoa, are you kidding me? You did all those crazy, terrible, evil things, and then you came to know Jesus? That is such a better testimony. The person who just lived the normal life and realized that there was a God in heaven that created them and sent his only son, Jesus, to die for them and gave their life to Christ, that that's not that great of a testimony. Listen, who you were is important, but again, it's not most important. What's important is saying, what did God do for me? How did God change my life? So it doesn't matter if you're on death row, skid row, or you're making millions, that you, we, us, we get to that point where it's like, what did God do for me? I was dead in my sins. I was going to hell, and God forgave me. He cleansed me. I have a relationship with God who loves me. This leads us to Paul's section one, who I was, as he's telling Agrippa now his testimony, his story. Because it is his story, so tell it. And nobody else has the same one. Verse 4, Paul says, My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation, at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I have lived a Pharisee. And Paul interjects in verses 6, 7, and 8 his position now and then he'll pick up his testimony in verse 9 but verse 6 he says and now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers to this promise our 12 tribes earnestly serving God night and day hope to attain for this hope's sake King Agrippa I am accused by the Jews why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead and verse 9 again with his story Indeed, I myself thought that I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. This is who Paul the Apostle was. This is our section one. Who I was. Strictest religious person. Arrested Christians, put them to death, compelled them to blaspheme. I was a man full of hate and I persecuted Christians. But he doesn't camp out there. He rather segues into what section two is, what God did. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, it says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. God has given us love, he's given us power, he's given us a sound mind, but we're not to be ashamed even standing before kings and rulers of what God has done. Because this is when it gets crazy. Because when you're sharing your testimony about who you were before Christ, that's where the relatability to the world happens. 
It's easy to talk about my past life. Man, I used to party, and man, I used to do drugs, and man, I used to do this, and man, I used to do that, and I was this guy and all that. Whoa, man, that's so crazy. I do that every night, man, whatever it might be. And that's where the relatability comes in, but we're not to camp out there. Remember that the Lord is with you, and when you are called to speak, God will empower you. And so as he's standing before This King Agrippa, who was very knowledgeable of the law of the Jews, Paul said, hey, I was a Pharisee. I was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. Not only this Christianity thing did did I hunt down and hate, but I killed the people. I arrested them. I persecuted them. I caused them to blaspheme. This is how religious I was. But then he segues into verse 12, and this is the meaty part of our section this morning. He says, while thus occupied... Occupied with what? Doing all these terrible things to the church. He says, I journeyed as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest. At midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul. And for those of you that don't know, Saul... Uh, Paul's name was Saul, previous uh, to his uh, calling by the Lord. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I'd like to point out here is that Jesus met Paul exactly where he was at. He met Paul exactly where he was at, on his way to commit that which was evil. That's where Jesus met him as he, as, as he was filled with sin on his way to sin. That is where Jesus reached out. He didn't reach out to Paul when Paul was saying, oh, I'm so sorry, or I need to be a better person, or I'm trying to change. And, you know, uh, he didn't, Jesus didn't reach out to Paul when, when Paul wasn't hurting people and filled with hate. Jesus reached out to Paul exactly where he was at, in sin and again on his way to sin. But not only that, Jesus addressed the fact that it was hard for Paul to fight against the conviction that what he was doing was wrong. In verse 14, it says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, it's not really a term that we use these days. Uh, but nonetheless, it's a, it's, a, it's a legitimate term, and it was used for farmers when they had oxen uh, in order to, uh, to lead them properly. They had sharp spikes that were that, that, like wooden, wooden spikes that came out from the back of, uh, of, of what they were uh, on the plow, what they were using to, to kind of harness these oxen. And the oxen, if they ever wanted to buck against what the farmer was doing, they would get poked by one of these things and they're like, ah, don't think I'll do that again. When he says here, Jesus told Saul, he says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. I truly believe that even Saul was fighting against the conviction of the Holy Spirit and knowing that what he was doing was wrong. Have you, and I think this makes sense because have you ever found somebody that was so angry against God or filled with such hate and was just so antagonistic against the gospel? It was those people that have down deep inside knew. They, they knew that what was being said or what Jesus stood for was right and they had to override their conscience. I mean, I know on a micro level, even for me, it's like if somebody calls you out or when you were a kid and your parents were saying what you're doing is wrong and you would get angry, you knew deep down inside, yeah, they're right. 
And your choices are to either confess, yeah, you know what, you are right, I have sinned, or to get angry about it and to get hard-hearted about it and to go further away from that which is true. So Paul was kicking against the goads and Jesus met him on his way to destroy more Christians. I feel like it's important for us to note this morning that no matter how many people say that what we're doing is all right, or maybe how many people we surround ourselves that are indifferent to what we're doing, we know that what we're doing is wrong deep down inside. We do, we know, we know. So I said, verse 15, Paul speaking, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and the things which I will yet reveal to you. Now, what I find so amazing about this verse, please track with me on this particular subject. Verse 15, okay, this is an amazing thing. He says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So all of these things that Paul was doing against God, attacking his church, hurting his people, was against Jesus. It was against Jesus. It was against Jesus he was sinning and hurting. So, does Jesus belabor the point in verse 16? This is what I think is so cool. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but stand up. I got work for you to do. But rise, I'm going to use you as a minister. I mean, when you look at this in context, even just how these two verses connect to each other, Paul is doing terrible, evil things, and Jesus says, yes, you're sinning against me, but get up, I have work for you to do. I mean, are you kidding? For those of us in the battle with no condemnation, guilt, for those of us think that we're too far gone, that, that man, we've sinned too much, that, that God can't use us. I mean, can you see this segue here? Not only did Jesus meet Paul exactly where he is at and addresses that he was in essence, you know, as he was doing these evil things, uh, hurting the church was hurting him. He didn't even belabor that point, And that's exactly the way Jesus works with us today. He shows us, hey, what you're doing is sinful. What you're doing is wrong. But get up. Let's go in the opposite direction. I have work for you to do. How cool is that? How amazing is that for us this morning to know that when we sin, that we have an advocate, Jesus, who meets us exactly where we're at and says, yes, you're sinning against me, but I've called you to greater things, so arise. You're going to be my servant. You're going to be my messenger. I'm going to send you out, and I'm going to use you. If that doesn't bring you hope this morning, then I don't know what will, because at any moment, Jesus will meet you at that very precise time, and he will say the same thing to you. Go and sin no more. I know your sin, I know what you've done, and I know you know that it's wrong, and you've tried to be hard-hearted, and you've tried to, to cover that conviction with anger and whatever it might be, but today, I am calling you to follow me. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. Jesus says, I've appeared to make you my follower and be the messenger of my message. In verse 17, I will deliver you, Paul, uh, Jesus says to Paul, from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. 
to open their eyes, in order to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sin and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And that is the most amazing thing that could ever happen. He just says, you're doing all these terrible things and instantaneously I'm forgiving you, I'm calling you, let's go about my father's business. Come on. This, this is amazing. And Paul excelled in what he did. He excelled in what the Lord called him to do. He wrote in Colossians 3 verse 23, Paul says, Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Which leads us to point number four this morning. Don't underachieve. Point number three was don't be ashamed. Point number four is don't underachieve. Now listen to this interesting verse from Proverbs 22, verse 29. Do you see a man who excels in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown men. Proverbs twenty two twenty nine. Do you see a man who excels in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown men. It's very unfortunate when a Christian doesn't work hard or put all of his effort into his job. It's a bad witness. Excelling in your work, excelling in our work gives us a platform from which to share the gospel. Paul didn't have this chance to stand before kings by doing the smallest amount of work possible and not taking seriously the work that he knew had to be done. Don't underachieve. Well, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Do I work hard? Do I go all in with what God is calling me to do? What does the Bible say? And it will never return void. Do you see a man that excels in his work? He will stand before kings and not stand before unknown men. When you do well, your bosses know about it. People in authority know about it. And it opens the doors to influence the elite with the gospel. To be all in, to be fully committed, to excel in whatever you're doing, to do it unto the Lord. Because most often the case is, and it's just natural and it's by default. We, we, we look for the paths of least resistance. How can I get this done doing the least amount of work? Some of us might say, well, that's just smart. But some of us will say, no, that's lazy. Because you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. Now, we like technology. Things are great. I love iPhones, iPads, all those kind of things. But... How many brain cells have we lost from using them? How many phone numbers do we even know anymore? You know, it's just the way that it works. Technology can be great, but when it comes down to the efforts that we put into doing things, are we excelling? It doesn't matter where you're at. I worked at Nordstrom when I was in college. I did a good job in sales. Praise the Lord. He helped me. I'm excelling that. You get to know the managers. You get to know people. You know, you're, you're working as you take orders at In-N-Out or at McDonald's over here, at Del Taco, whatever you might. And you know what? You do a good job and you work hard. And what does that do? Man, that guy, that gal, they work hard. They do a good job. Man, they're ethical. They're on time. And you know what? They're, 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 there's people that need to know about this guy. There are people that need to know about this girl. Are we excelling in our work? Are we doing a good job? Are we being a good representation of what it means to be a follower of Christ? 
I think this is important for us to think of today because we can find ourselves, and I have done this myself, so I'm not holier than thou, where we are in a, in a particular job or on a workforce or someplace, and maybe we don't really like it very much, and everybody knows it. And we talk about it. And then we, it's written on our face. I think that we need to do a better job of excelling in our work. And when we excel in our work, watch what doors open for us to be able to influence people with the gospel because we've laid the foundation of a good witness. You know, so often you'll see business cards with an ichthus. And if you don't know what the ichthus is, that's the little fish, the Christian fish. You know, where, you know, they, in, 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 the, in the Roman days, they draw one half in the sand. And if the person was a Christian, they'd draw the other half. And it would, it would form that fish. And you'll see people that are, you know, businessmen. And they'll put the ichthus on their fish. And so you'll call them up and be like, oh, sweet. I'm getting a, a really good Christian plumber or whatever it might be. And they come in and do terrible work. And they rip you off and they charge you so much money. Like, how does that supposed to be a good witness? How is that supposed to be something that that we want to continue to propagate? Shouldn't it be so? Paul studied the scriptures. Paul knew his audience. He knew, most importantly, the Lord, and he took that seriously. He was invested. He was all in. He didn't just 50% it or one foot in, one foot out. He was all in, and he excelled in what he did. He excelled in that. And he was... Nonetheless, standing before King Agrippa, which now leads us in verse 19 to Paul's section number 3, where we'll conclude. Remember, section 1 of our story. Remember, letter A was, it's our audience, so know it. Letter B was, uh, it's our story, so tell it. And we looked at the three parts of our story, which is who I was, what God did, and who I am now. This is section 3, verse 19. Therefore, King Agrippa... I was not obedient to, uh, disobedient excuse me, to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem, verse 20, and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. Wow, that's the story. Hey, I was this kind of guy, that's, that's, that's who I was. And he, he spent a little time there, he didn't camp out there. The dynamic moment, Jesus met me exactly where I was at. He he met me exactly where I was at. On my way to commit things that were terrible, Jesus interceded. He changed my life. He didn't condemn me. He didn't say, you're too far gone. He said, get up. I have work for you to do. And that's what we need to be reminded of today. Can you just see how this conversation is playing out? Can you put yourself in Paul's sandals, if it were, and, and see how... How would I be using this kind of thing when I'm telling somebody about how great a God I serve? That then God changed me. I'm a different man. And he commissioned me. And though I was an insolent man filled with hate and persecuting Jesus, Jesus met me, he changed me, and he commissioned me to be his messenger, whom I obey even now, O King Agrippa, by standing here before you. In verse 21, for these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. The Jews, the ones from whom I have come, the ones that were previously my friends and are my countrymen, because of my encounter with Jesus and how I've changed into a different person, they seek to destroy me. Therefore, verse 22, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand. Witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. 
that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Remember what Jesus, uh, remember what, what Paul says uh, here in verse, 20, uh, verse 18 of chapter 26. He says, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul, by this time, is preaching it up. He is preaching it up. I mean, he is full guns a-blazing. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't that be the way that we want to go out? Like, you know, he is letting them all fire, preaching the word of God. It doesn't matter that this man is King Agrippa, and there's the Roman governor Festus, there's Bernice, there are all the nobles, man, the, the elite Praetorian guard. Whoa, and he's preaching the word of God. And now as he thus made his defense in verse 24, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escape his attention. Since this thing was not done in a corner, what thing? The crucifixion of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, the work of Jesus on this earth for the three and a half years of his earthly ministry. And then in verse 27, Paul says this. He goes all the way in for it. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do believe. The Old Testament, the Word of God, this is what Paul had as his resource. He wasn't teaching anything outside of what the Word of God says. He wasn't referencing anything outside of what the Word of God says. King Agrippa, do you, I mean, are you kidding? Right there. I mean, that would be like if we were standing before President Obama and be like, do you know how much God loves you? And that he sent his only son, Jesus. Do you want to be saved right now? I mean, you'd be like, whoa, whoa. Wow. Paul, before the king and his wife and Festus, the Roman governor, is so bold. He says, I know you believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, verse 28, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Can you believe that? And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both, almost, and altogether such as I am, except for these chains no doubt as he was chained to two roman soldiers he says i wish that you would be just like me and what a picture that would be you know standing there with the shackles on his legs and on his hands he says i wish that you would be just like me except for these chains he almost persuaded me to become a christian these are the words of someone that is on fire on fire I wish that all of you who hear to me, hear, hear me speak today, nobles, leaders, soldiers, servants, governors, and kings would know Jesus personally as their Lord and Savior. This is unbelievable. This is amazing. And Agrippa said, almost, which could mean in short time I could be a Christian. Or that there is little distance between me and Christianity. Now, using this word almost, Agrippa's answer is extremely sorrowful. I'm almost a Christian. I can almost be a Christian. What does that mean? 
almost have eternal life, almost delivered from the judgment of God, almost delivered from the consequences of hell, but almost isn't enough. Again, for the third time, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is what the Lord has called Paul to do, but this is what the Lord has called us to do. To be proclaimers of his word. To use the the great gift that he has given us. To lead others to Jesus so that they might have their eyes turned from darkness to light and leave. Being controlled by the power of Satan and be under the control of the God who created them and loves them. Don't underachieve. Don't underachieve. Let me say it one more time. As a Christian man or a woman, do not underachieve. Do not set a ceiling cap on what you think God can and cannot do through your life. Don't think because you have sinned and you have made too many mistakes that God is incapable of immediately raising you up and saying, let's get back at it. I have work for you to accomplish. We need to know who we are in Christ. We need to know how great a God that we serve is and how he is completely capable in our time of need. And so... Don't be ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to save. It doesn't matter who you're speaking to. Lead singers of bands, rock stars, actors, bosses, superiors, whoever it may be. Let your excellence in what you do give a platform to proclaim the gospel. Because a Christian has their eyes opened, has turned from darkness to light, has turned from the power of Satan to God, has received forgiveness of sins, and has an inheritance from God. Why didn't it? Why didn't Agrippa receive Jesus that very moment? Was it because of the immoral woman he was with that he would lose? Bernice was a very immoral woman. She left her husband to be with Agrippa. Very immoral. And we'll think about how that even plays out in a lot of relationships today. If I give my life to Jesus, then I'm going to lose an immoral woman. Or I'm going to lose an immoral man because we know that what we're doing is wrong. And if I decide to follow Jesus, then that's going to cost me something. Was it because of the respect of the the governor, Festus, that he would lose so he didn't reply and, 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 and give his life to the Lord at that moment? Because Festus just said, Paul, you're mad. Too much learning's driven you crazy, etc. What will people think about me? I'll lose respect if I become a Christian, a follower of Jesus. You can see how those feelings are the feelings that we feel even today. In Matthew 16, 26, Jesus said, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The Lord has called us as Christians to be bold, to be courageous, to be on fire. And if we're lacking that, then we need to ask the Holy Spirit to empower us. If we are shirking our responsibilities and not doing what we're supposed to be doing and not excelling in our work, then we need to be convicted, hopefully, by God to know that we are doing the Lord a disservice by not doing a good job as a Christian. We need to excel. The Word of God isn't just made-up stuff and, oh, that's for some people. No, it says, do you see a man that excels in his work? He will stand before kings. So you stand before your manager. You stand before his manager. 
You stand before that vice president of operations. You stand before the CEO. You stand before that mayor or that governor or that president or that king or that ruler or that leader. And you have the opportunity to proclaim God's word. In verse 30, when he had said these things, the king stood up as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves saying, this man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Now some people say that it was a mistake for Paul to use his right as a Roman citizen instead of trusting in God, as if those two were mutually exclusive. Paul knew his rights, and I think it's important to know our rights as Americans. I think it's important to know what our Constitution says. I think it's very, very right to be aware of what's happening in this world. And knowing your rights doesn't mean you're not trusting in God. However, by this appeal to Caesar, we will see Paul have the opportunity to preach the gospel to the most powerful man in the known world, the emperor of Rome, even fulfilling what God spoke of Paul in foresight, Acts 9, verse 15. The Lord said, Paul is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, before kings, and the children of Israel. So the Lord already knew what was going, and this is part of that plan. And next week, we'll start the second to last chapter in our study of the book of Acts, chapter 27, as Paul makes his way to Italy.